the life of George Floyd, and they're, actually they're seeing it now, the life of George Floyd, the life of one child of God is worth more than all the property in the city of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And that's just hard for some people to conceive. People who are caught up in uh, the ways of this world and the materialism and the possession and again, the ownership, the life of one child of God. And you hear it over and over in terms of Jesus' narrative of going to save one lost sheep. The life of one child of God is worth more than all the property in Minneapolis. Hello and welcome to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. This is going to be a short intro and another unique episode. Today's episode is another episode that I recorded on the heels of, of the, the racial unrest and, and, and myself and Danielle going to a Black Lives Matter protest and march. And, and I reached out to a number of mentors to just kind of chat and connect with them. And one of those mentors I reached out to was Julian Gordon. Julian Gordon was actually one of my, I met Julian when I was working at Hartford Community College and he came in as our orientation speaker. And And so that was my first job I had out of college where I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to do what he was doing. At that time, I wanted to do orientation, college orientation, speaking, training, uh, training orientation leaders, you name it. And and so I reached out to Julian and said, you know, at, at that time, Actually, I remember calling him uh, or texting him after his presentation to say, could I could I take you out to dinner? I knew he was staying in a hotel nearby. I don't think he had a car. I think he was he took the train down from New York. And so I'd pick him up and we'd go to dinner. And I remember being really nervous about doing that because I didn't know this guy. What if he said no? I was 24, 23 at the time. And, and just a lot of maybe even 22. I had just graduated college. And so there was a lot of just nervousness that went into that. And of course, he said yes, and we went to dinner, and it became it began a lifelong friendship and and mentorship, learning from Julian. And when I quit my job at Harford about three three and a half years later, he was one of the first calls I made, and he became my first business coach. Uh, paid him to to teach me how to build and run an effective business, and it was one of the best things I did at that time. Today, Julian is still doing business coaching. He's more focused on real estate than on the speaker side of things. On his website, juliangordon.com, it says, I've fully freed dozens of people through entrepreneurship and real estate to live in their purpose full time and helped thousands more. Honestly, to to learn everything you can about this guy, you're going to have to go to his website and read it for the entire day. He's tremendously accomplished. He's he's whip smart. He's he's one of the smartest people I know and lean on and and seek advice from. Uh, His Instagram is a fantastic place to learn about who he is and what he stands for and his opinions. He shares them openly on Instagram, whether you like him or not. Uh, You can hear him, disagree with him, agree with him. Uh, He's got 38.2 thousand followers as of right now on Instagram on there. He said, I teach folks how to get free with real estate. So why am I having Julian on this podcast, right? Uh, I haven't yet on the podcast really talked too much about entrepreneurship. Certainly don't talk about real estate. The reason I'm having Julian on this podcast is because uh, he is a black man in America, grew up in Oakland, California, has lived in Brooklyn, now lives in New Orleans. And and he is someone that I reach out to during during these times just to talk. I'm not, I'm not asking him for 
the answers. I'm just looking to talk and, and seek his experience. And he's always been someone I've learned a ton from. Uh, this interview is really just, it, it's almost him talking the entire time, which is what I want. It's, it's just giving, allowing my platform to be used by my mentors and my friends to share their truth, share their reality, share their opinion. Uh, he thinks differently about almost everything. He doesn't think of things in a literal kind of linear way. He thinks differently. He unpacks it. He, he tries to look at the, the whole history and the holistic nature of it. It, it. A fascinating, fascinating guy. And I, I, I hope you enjoy this interview and it gets you to think a little differently about some of these conversations that we get to have. And I hope you're staying safe, uh, continuing to stay social distanced. Let's do our part so we can get back together, get back on college campuses, get back to sports as soon as we possibly can. It's only going to come if we each do our part, wear our masks, and stay socially distanced. With that being said, please enjoy my cup of coffee with Julian Gordon. Yeah, so um, uh, for me as um, uh, a black man in this country, um, it's been an interesting experience. I've had my own encounters with the law, simply just going to the ATM, being identified as a, a suspect in between four feet tall, 10 feet tall with a cocoa complexion. <laughs> uh, of course you fit the description uh, when they're that broad. Um, and uh, so that, uh, I've had various run-ins with uh, the law, though I've done my best to, not my best, I'm not trying, I'm not afraid of the law, uh, but I've just been a normal human being and um, the law tends to find us for various reasons. Um, to be honest, out of their own fear, um, out of their own fear and their own programming that um, many of them uh, go through or been born with, um, et cetera. And the training, um, the, uh, I think that blue is a race for them. Um, and it is, uh, and the programming that you must go through to step into that and live in that every single day um, is probably very uh, challenging. And um, regardless of what you come in as, uh, when you go through it and what you come out as is, is really the question. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it's very interesting to see. Uh, what, I, what I do know is that um, uh, racism is not uh, Black people's issue to solve. It is an internal, it is uh, within the white family. Um, however that family is defined, it's still a vague, a very vague family. Um, uh, though people of a certain hue benefit from white privilege, um, uh, the family is kind of loose knit. <laughs> um, and um, racism, like I can't, if racism is directed towards people of color, I can't go, I, there's nothing I can do to go convince somebody who is racist um, that uh, to change their heart or to change their mind. Um, and then uh, what's even harder is somebody who doesn't even know they're racist um, <laughs> is trying to change their perspective. So uh, this is actually for white brothers and sisters, good people uh, like yourselves using their platforms and, and their connections with the family members who they consider sick, who, um, who have this mental illness called racism. Um, I do believe it is a mental illness um, uh, that has, for whatever reason, uh, infected uh, the white culture in this very unique way. 
Um, there's various reasons that that could be. Um, I don't know which one is actually, uh, could actually be accurate. Um, and so when you see, uh, I have mental illness in my family and it is my responsibility to try to address that. Um, and when I'm out in public with my family members who might have mental illness, I have to figure out how to navigate to make sure that their uh, challenges, which is our family business, don't negatively affect other people. <laughs> That's my responsibility when I'm out with them. And so given that this uh, racism uh, can actually only come from uh, the people in power, because racism, there's no such thing as reverse racism. Um, I can't uh, be racist to someone who, uh, I can't be racist because and for me as an individual, I don't perceive myself as above anyone. Mm-hmm. I don't perceive myself as above anyone. So racism is a dynamic where you think you are higher than or better than someone. And therefore, uh, your lens, your lens is actually colored or, or blurred. And therefore, you look down upon other people. I don't look down upon anybody. And so it, therefore, it's actually uh, difficult for me to be racist. Um, so um, uh when you look at the human body, um, there are, uh, when there's a cancer in the body, um, one cancerous cell, the entire immune system gets triggered, the entire immune system. So this is why you get knocked off your feet for two days when you get sick, because the entire immune system is going on defense, uh, because it knows that one cancerous cell can actually infect the whole body if not addressed. Over time, that immune system, the white blood cells end up uh, targeting that specific area and that specific cell uh, to make sure that it gets um, addressed. But the entire body goes on defense. And so that's what's happening in this country right now is that the entire immune system of the American body is actually going on defense. And it's been beautiful to see my white brothers and sisters show up in the way that they've shown up because that is the function of the white blood cell. And so the white blood cells in this country, um, the good white people uh, who, who are aware that, wow, there's actually a distinction. There's actually a distinction because for a long time, white privilege is actually just joining the clump. It's just saying, oh, I'm part of this thing uh, or I'm benefiting from this thing. But I think what we've seen is that there's two, uh, there's many different types of white folks in this country. Um, but uh, I think what we're seeing is that there's definitely a distinction between those that hate and those that, those that are rooted in hate and those that are rooted in love. And I think those that are rooted in hate for whatever reason um, uh, are now triggering those who are rooted in love to say, wait a second, uh, we've let you all dominate the narrative for quite some time and we've just sat silently because it's benefited us collectively as a white whole. But that doesn't represent who I am. And now when you have people in Amsterdam, Netherlands, Australia, et cetera, standing up and saying that this is wrong. Now America knows that it's perception, knowing that it's a white dominated country right now, um, that it's perception is actually being, uh, there's a perception that the entire world has and the people, the white people who are rooted in love, saying no that's not accurate uh yes we've stood silent for a long time but that's not accurate and we're finally going to step up and do something about it all this stuff has been happening for uh since 1619 since the first slave ship came here this has been happening and actually it's been happening amongst white people uh historically um even if there were no black people here um 
even if there are no white, black people here, uh, for some reason, the history of white folks going back to Europe has been a very uh, murderous one. It's been a lot of war and a lot of killing. We look at World War I and World War II, it's 85 million deaths, that's 40 million deaths. Um, World War, I think it was World War I, the 85 million was 3% of the entire global population. That's white on white crime. Now we can frame it as, oh, but those were governments and countries fighting each other. Okay, that's cool, but that's white on white crime. So uh, where this idea has come from and how it got planted into the consciousness and the DNA of uh, European people who have now migrated here to the United States, um, I have no clue. I can't trace the, mm -hmm. I've had difficulty tracing the root. Um, and uh, what I do know is that hurt people hurt people. And so the white folks that are here in the United States, whether they can trace their roots back or not, um, most of them were persecuted in Europe. And this is why they left to come to the United States for a new opportunity for ability to uh, express themselves religiously in their own way without that persecution. So they actually felt abandoned. Most of them felt abandoned by Europe uh, or by, I, I think it was classism in Europe, the feudal system and things of that nature. So they came here for a new opportunity and they were hurt. And this is where you have the Boston Tea Party. But when you have the Boston Tea Party, right, uh, we, we frame it um, as this revolutionary act and we call it a tea party. But when black folks are rioting in the streets for justice, it's called, uh, it's called rioting and looting. Yeah, like when Harry, Harry, Swain, no, I was going to, not to interrupt, but Harry Swain, I told you I talked to him last week, and he, he I, I kept using the word riot, um, and he stopped me and said, why do you use that word? He goes, he brought up the same point. He said the, the word from his, from his understanding, the word rioting, uh, when it's used with black people came from when the slaves began to protest and rise up against their slave owners and it was considered a riot. And then, you know, they're in the civil rights era, it was considered a riot. Now it's considered a riot. Whereas when the white community, you mentioned, you know, the world wars or even the revolutionary war in this country, um, when we quote unquote riot, or I should say the white community, uh, it's a rebellion. Or and a revolution. Really, or or a revolution, or a tea party, and even the language. Tea of party, it. a tea party, like a tea party. Yeah, yeah. When I, I mean, of course, they were throwing tea in the Boston yeah. Harbor, but yeah, it's just this. No, is, that's how it's taught to this day, though, right? Is yeah. that it was a tea party, whereas the history books, hopefully, twenty years from now, will be written differently, and and this era. But I don't, I don't have that much hope in that. I think, I think when we say growth is slow, it is slow, and I think even still there's good editorials, you know, the Baltimore Sun had a great article about supporting the protests right now, and they still called them riots. And yeah. I, I thought, because no one's pointing out to them. So it is interesting, but you're right, the language is important. Yeah, language is always important. And uh, uh, language is actually uh, one of the institutions that perpetuates racism. Um, you know, you have things like uh, the white Jesus, uh, which historically everybody knows that Jesus was not of the hue that he has been painted in um, over and over and over again. Um, there was nobody in that region uh, of that hue, um, yet churches um, continue to uphold that imagery and that narrative. Um, you have angel, you have angel food uh, cake, and you have devil's cake. One is white, one is black, right? You have white lies, and then you have uh, white lies. Those are like okay kind of lies, <laughs> right? Um, then you have the black market, you have Black Friday, um, uh, things of that nature. So we kind of um, ingrain racism into our language and our narrative. And 
and uh, it that only perpetuates uh, perpetuates um, what ends up manifesting in turn. Our language really shapes how we perceive the world, uh, or it is a reflection of how we perceive the world. Um, and uh, uh, so, a lot of racism is baked into our language, like rioting, looting, etc. Uh, when certain people are doing actions, it's called differently. Um, what is it? I, I don't know what the drug is. I don't know if it's cocaine and meth, like. It's the same exact substance, except one is actually a cheaper form, but because of the language and the narrative around it, uh, you have young black people getting um, uh, this many years in jail, and then other white folks were using the, I think the more richer form of the substance. Like cocaine and crack of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. cocaine and crack, you're using the more richer form of the substance, yet the, the penalties are nowhere near the same. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't know how to, uh, uncover this i don't necessarily i'm not a i'm not a marcher um we as black people we've marched for quite some time and um and that's actually led to the results that we desire oh well martin luther king did this martin luther king uh was afraid that he had led his own people into a burning house <laughs> um through integration we were actually more powerful uh we were more powerful as a people uh, when we were segregated but then when we try to segregate ourselves then we create places like greenwood in tulsa oklahoma or rosewood in florida um they get burned down so it's like okay you brought me collectively okay i'm not saying bobby uh or did it but yeah. collectively, you bought me you brought me here um against my will now i'm here uh and um and when uh, i try to integrate uh, when i try to integrate you hate when I try to separate, you hate. I have no place to go because I can't actually trace my roots. Black people are the only people that can't trace their roots to any specific land. Everybody else uh, can trace their origin back to a specific land. Black people, we are kind of like spirits on this earth because uh, there's no specific land that we can actually trace our roots back to. Um, we can take the DNA test and things of that nature, but in terms of actually being able to go back, see our last name somewhere, or, um, and not our slave master's last, uh, last name, um, and actually have a family member somewhere. Uh, we can't do that. We can say the West Coast of Africa or whatnot, um, but uh, so we have nowhere to specifically go. Um, I do believe that this land is Native American land, um, and uh, part of uh, the beginning of racism was to justify uh, what people deemed or what white folks using language deemed as cannibalism and uh, cannibalism and uh, uncivilized, right? Um, and that we are uh, more sophisticated and civilized than you. Um, and it must be because of this visual difference, it must be because of my skin color and my race. And so, um, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. There are many different facets to racism. What, uh, why, I'm, why I'm happy to be here with you is one, I do consider you a brother. Um, and then two, uh, the fact that you do so much work in the sports world. Um, there's actually, uh, in Caldini's book, um, Influence, uh, there's actually two times where I, I really see people of different cultures coming together as one, when there's a common enemy. Um, and so when you have a September 11th, even though I have my own thoughts about that, when there seems to be an outside enemy, the people that are in the country that were divided themselves, all of a sudden become one because there's this, now there's this outside invader. If aliens came, we would all unite. If mm -hmm. aliens came and they were a threat, we would all, humanity would unite, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. but, uh, without that outside threat, 
um, we stay divided. And, um, and then the other time that I've seen teams come together, even in the midst of Drew Brees' interesting comments that were unnecessary at this particular time, um, I've seen people come together uh, cross-culturally um, in the context of sports um, because there is a larger common goal that everybody is working towards. Um, so it's this common shared experience, a uh, positive experience, a common shared positive experience or a threatening outsider trying to invade. Um, so those are the two times that I've, uh, the two signature times where I see cultures coming together and what America's experiencing. America's young. In the context of countries, America is very young. So mm-hmm. it's kind of in its adolescent stage and, um, I think we forget that um, it's not uh, just because you're young, that doesn't justify your behavior. Um, but uh, if we look at historical historical context, America is young. If America wasn't protected by the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, like just geographically, uh, America would have been stomped out long ago um, for the way it's moved and the way it's behaved on a global scale. Um, it just happened to have these two huge oceans that separate it from um, a lot of major players all across the world. Um, so. Uh, it is what it is, and and we're here. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, I don't consider myself an activist. Um, I am more of a proactivist, and I believe that there's people who need to be on the front lines. And I'm so grateful for the young energy and the spirits that are on that front line. I think there's people who deal with the triage, which is the immediate need in the moment, and then I think there's people who deal with the transformation. So um, if we have um, just the healthcare system, right? There's people who need to be on the ground dealing with immediate needs because people are about to die like right now. And then there's people who are spending their time thinking about the transformation of the entire healthcare system as a whole. And you actually need both. And so uh, I used to be a frontliner um, and now I am more uh, on the uh, forward thinking and like what, what, uh, trying to create a vision that we can move towards rather than continuing to push against what is or or the past so i'm more of a how are you doing that how are you doing that right now uh right now i'm i'm actually uh, uh doing a real estate a huge real estate development in um, baton rouge where uh baton rouge is a dominantly black city uh in the in louisiana and uh i'm doing a real estate fund and development that uh is restoring a historically black neighborhood um, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to create a safe space in a city and in the that's country. That's LSU, right? LSU's in Baton Rouge? Yeah, LSU's in Baton Rouge. I only know that because that's why I've been there. I remember yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so um, trying to create a safe space in a city um, and in a country for black people to live. Now this community, we can't restrict other people from living in this community and we wouldn't desire that. Um, I'm open to anybody who has a a unitarian or open mind to be in faith, but um, we are literally seeking to, you know, create another Tulsa, Oklahoma, or, or the na- Greenwood neighborhood where, you know, businesses were burned down. Um, based Can on you talk about money. that more? I think what I'm learning is a lot of folks don't even know that story. Yeah, so uh, there was a thriving um, Black community um, that built itself up um, in, in, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was actually the Greenwood neighborhood. Um, tons of residents, over 400 uh, businesses were there. And in 1921, um, there was speculation uh, that um, there was some sort of speculation. I, I, I don't know what, what triggered it, that a black man did something to a white woman. Um, and so this is where, you know, the Amy Cooper 
situation kind of gets pulled in where there's uh, a white woman um, uh, weaponizing her fear um, and then blaming a black man uh, for mm. causing that fear. Um, and then uh, the other white residents of Tulsa outside of Greenwood came into the neighborhood to um, uh, burn it down. Literally uh, blocks and blocks and blocks of, of black wealth uh, burned down to the ground in, in like 48 hours. Um, so uh, here we were trying to do on our own, no dependency on the United States, uh, maybe the plumbing and the electricity, et cetera, but we were trying to just have our own and we build it up in a significant way. And uh, the first opportunity that the white folks of Tulsa at that time had, they came in and then not only did they burn the property, they killed people. <laughs> they killed mm -hmm. over 100 people. Um, so uh, the same thing happened in Rosewood, Florida. Uh, and so anytime we, it's like, it's like there's this weird underlying thing, like just from a, a, a collective white narrative, it's like, um, you were, you're our slaves, we brought you here, and there's no way that you should ever be thriving in this country. <laughs> and even if it's separate from us, we will do whatever it takes to bring that down because you will stay in this slave position for as long as I'm breathing. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. that's, just, that's just really, really, it's just really weird. It's like, yeah. what is that? What is that? Like, that is, and that's why I call it a mental health issue. Um, I, I'm very careful with that language because when you call it a mental health issue, then you can kind of pass it off. Oh, yeah, he just, you know, he's funny, you know? No, this is, it's a sickness. Now, I like what you said when you were, I wrote this down, you, when you called it a mental health challenge and you said, you know, if you have, you, you used your own life to say that you have folks in your family with mental health issues. And when you're out in public, it, it's on you to make sure that those individuals don't harm anybody else. And I think to the best of my ability, you know, I can't take full responsibility, yeah. but to the yeah. best of my ability. Yes. But that's why I don't. And again, I, I you know, it, it's, it's, it's this, we're in this position now where we're, we're trying to talk for large amounts of people. And so I'll never do that. I'll talk for my own self and say, you know, why this, this has sparked me to be a part of the conversation is because yeah. um, I, I have realized that I, I was silent for so long out of a thought in my own head that mm -hmm. this wasn't my fight. Genuinely. Oh, yeah. that, right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then I, and then I was challenged enough by people I trust and respect you included. Cause even when we don't talk, I'm following you mm -hmm. on social media to say, um, you know, as I've always preached, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're, if you're remaining silent, if you're not challenging family members, friends, you know, if I'm at a barbecue with 20 people and they're all white and, and someone makes even a joke or a comment that's yeah. racist, if I ignore that to not quote unquote ruin the barbecue, yeah. um, which I'm, I'm, I know I've done, in, in my mm -hmm. life, yeah. um, then, then that is, that is allowing those stereotypes to continue to exist and those individuals to believe that, that they can say those things in a, in a room with all white people. And if they're yeah. one black person, maybe they wouldn't make the joke. And it's like, well, then yeah. don't make the joke at all. Like, my wife's really about that, um, uh, that, you know, if it makes a joke, 
it just happened recently. Someone made a joke that was a racist joke, uh, not towards a black person. It was actually towards, I think it was like an Asian person or something like that. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and, and, and she was very quick to say, that's not funny. And, mm -hmm. and, and she said, later I asked her about it, like, wow, you're just so good at that. You're so quick at that. And mm -hmm. she goes, I always think to myself, well, what if so-and-so were in the room? What if so-and-so, like someone she knows was there, would yeah. they find it funny? And, and that is then going back to why we, why we're even talking is, is, is just that, I think that connection of relationship is what a lot of people are missing yeah. um, is there are a lot of people I know that I've started to think about recently of why they have the certain feelings and thoughts they do. And I've challenged myself to say, do they have someone of a different religion, belief, color, creed, who they genuinely love? Like mm -hmm. as a, as a brother, as a sister, as a friend. Yeah, yeah. And, and my answer time and time again is no if it's someone who is deeply rooted in, in a, yeah. a certain bigotry um and so i think you know I, kind of a tangent off of your mental health but no, i, I want to make sure that's because i get it i get it yeah and i want to make sure it's not misconstrued by listeners um yeah, that yeah. you're making a grand statement about mental health yeah. it's just a wonderful example um that we can yeah. understand and it's, it's, it's and so Jane Elliott when she did the brown eye blue eye experiment and I, I would love to see it done uh, with uh, African American children but basically mm -hmm. she took some uh, some I don't I think they were third graders or something like in Wisconsin or something and uh, she divided them up by brown eyes and blue eyes and um, and as she gave the blue eye uh, you know privileges to go out to recess first to go to lunch first and things of that nature and she uh, she essentially was you know saying that the blue eyed kids were better and smarter um, and, and was getting privileges as a result of this. And the way that the blue eyed students started treating the brown eyed students just based on that distinction was just absolutely atrocious. And these are these are little kids, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the brown eyed uh, students, when she was like, oh, I, I kind of made a mistake and or it's time to switch. Um, and the brown-eyed students who had experienced the wrath of the blue-eyed students when they were now quote-unquote in power, uh, they could not, they didn't have the heart to treat the blue-eyed students the way that the blue-eyed students had treated them because they had experienced it. And so this is literally a classroom of all white kids. And so um, uh, I would love to see it done with uh, students of African descent. Um, but uh, that's, that's actually, um, that study so people can look it up. Jane Elliott, brown eye, blue eyed experiment, brown eye, blue eye experiment. And uh, I would, um, and that's actually when I started, stopped taking racism personal. Because at that moment, I actually realized that I don't know if it's just white people, she only did this with white kids, that white people um, would actually find a way to divide and, and create hate even if brown people didn't exist on this earth. So that it's actually not personal. Um, the, the differentiator has been skin color for a long time, but even if brown people were not here, um, they would find something else to divide across and, and hate. And that's, that's um, interesting. When I, and I think about this historically, uh, and again, I don't know where the root is. I'm not sure this root idea came um, but when I think about this historically, you think about European and its Europe and its architecture. There's a lot of castles and moats and things of that nature. So there was, there's always been. But if you go to Africa, um, you don't see that kind of architecture that's trying to keep something out. When the Native Americans had 
uh, control of this land here in the United States. And actually, they didn't perceive it as control. They were like, I was born and this land was here. It was given to me. This is not property that I'm supposed to own. This is a gift from whatever my source, my creator is. But in Europe, there the architecture, you can see it baked into the architecture. There's like these defense mechanisms of, I got to create a moat and a bridge and big walls to protect what's inside from some outsider. But when you look at other places, the, the architecture of that extent that is trying to keep something out, it doesn't exist. So there's something in the subconscious mind uh, of this particular demographic of people that is really fearful of things coming from the outside in. And, and again, I don't know what the root is and I don't know how to uproot it because I don't know what the root is, but it's been there for a very, very long time. And, um, and, uh, and it's really those folks taking a look at that. What is that? And, and trying to elevate to another level of consciousness that transcends that reptilian way of being, because that's really the fight or flight um, mindset. That's really the animalistic mindset that is baked into the mentality because uh, it is the if it's the driver of decision making and there is a way to elevate in consciousness that transcends uh, always being in a state of fight or flight always being in a state of fear um mm -hmm. and uh i mean uh, <laughs> yeah for black black men um black or black people in general i mean you just look at these situations i mean you got trayvon martin going and getting eating eating skittles you got uh, ahmaud aubrey just jogging um, you got Eric Gardner just selling some, selling some, uh, illeg illegally selling some, uh, like cigarette types, uh, things by this, by individual cigarettes. Um, uh, you got, uh, George Floyd. Uh, I actually, I'm not clear on what the full accusation was for George Floyd still. Um, but like just for breathing, we are perceived as a, a threat. You still got white women clutching their purses. I'd like uh, I'd like you to t and and let me know if this is if this question is insensitive or or yeah. you know you know to challenge me. Um, what's what I uh, you are in an interesting when you started the interview by saying um, uh, that you have been approached by the police at an ATM yeah. getting cash out. Um, yeah. I I immediately made a note to ensure that. Uh, I let folks know who don't know you about you because you're an individual who is Ivy League educated. You come from a, a family of doctors. Um, you you have uh, consistently built businesses and wealth for yourself and for others. And so I only, I say this because you know I had a great conversation last week with Harry about when an African American male specific and, and and you know and female too dies in this country the first question people ask is well what did they do and that's the wrong question and it's it's a distraction and it's it's not on point with with what the movement needs to be and i do believe the more that um folks that aren't seeing it the more that they hear story you know harry is a is a uh, an educated professional uh, who's worked at the highest level of the NFL, and he says when he's and he now lives in a, in a wealthy neighborhood in Maryland, and he said he's teaching his 16 year old son to drive, and he's also teaching him how to get pulled over. And uh, I know a good friend of mine had his mind changed on this because a good friend of him, who's a pastor, says who's a black man in Chicago, he's pulled over on average once a week because he fits the description. Yeah. And and you know. So I only share I only share your your 
resume, I guess, yeah. to, to kind of dispel this, this belief that, well, you know, the people want to argue, well, what did the individual do? And it, it didn't matter, right? If, you know, if you get approached at the ATM and, and lose your, your, your cool, which I know I've done more often than I want to admit, um, yeah. um, it's not going to be received the same as if I did. Yeah. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah. So yeah. for me, um, uh, when I'm when I get pulled over, uh, um, I actually keep my Stanford ID, even though I've been gone from there for uh, over a decade. I keep my Stanford ID and I hand that to the officer first, mm. just to try to diffuse whatever anger, energy, fear that they may have in the moment. And um, but I'm hesitant to actually answer this question. The reason why is because um, uh, my, regardless if I was uneducated, regardless of if I was living in poverty, if we just, if we just take, uh, let's say if George Floyd was a dog and there was an officer on that dog's neck, there were probably more people who got angry about Amy Cooper's dog and it not being able to breathe in that moment than the fact that she had threatened and weaponized her whiteness um, to potentially kill a black man, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, let's just take the race out of it just for a second for George Floyd. There's no human being that should ever have a knee on their neck in such a way that they can't breathe. Mm -hmm. Forget the race, forget the race. <laughs> Um, um, and the race only exacerbates why it happened. But if we just take race out of it, there's no human being in the world that should ever die in that way. <laughs> yeah, I agree there. I think the channel, I think even, even separating, you know, cause moving, not even talking about George Floyd. Yeah. I think there is a, you know, the whole movement right now and right now it's being framed up as defund the police. And some, some activists want that. Some are more just saying we need to reform the system. Um, and, and regardless, there are people that are against the conversation entirely. And in my experience, it's because they don't, when you as a black man say, you believe you are targeted by the police and maybe harassed by the police or treated differently, people don't believe you. Yeah, um, I think I yeah and that's where I think, you yeah. know, it's 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 getting to i'm i'm trying to do my best i don't i don't want these i don't want these interviews to turn into you just talking about your black experience but yeah. it, it is it is i am coming to realize how many people in my own community yeah believe black when they say we are targeted by the police and that me looking at my my friends and brothers who are police officers and sisters who are police officers yeah um and condemning them it's just pointing out the reality yeah, but it, it, the, the, my hesitancy with going into a full answer was the exceptionalism because most white folks who have platforms like yourself, they only, uh, they only deal with a, uh, they have friends um, who sure. are exceptional black folks. They don't deal with the black masses. They don't deal uh, with the core of my people. So mm -hmm. have I been blessed and have I been able to do some exceptional things with my life? I, I, I have, um, but... Uh, it's one thing to love me uh, or to accept me, but to when you reject my people as a whole, then that uh, that is not okay. That's family. Mm -hmm. So you love me, but you reject my family. That's um, that's that's not cool because my family family first, right? So uh, that uh, most white people's interaction is going to college and things of that nature, jobs, corporate fi Fortune 500 corporate jobs. Those are 
exceptional black folks. Not to say that, not to say that all of us couldn't perform at that level if we were given equal opportunity, but uh, most people, uh, white folks, connection and overlap with black folks is is when they found an exceptional person. Oh, you're different, or or you uh, you're not like the rest. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the subconscious yeah. thought that that occurs and. And uh, actually, I am uh, I am like the rest, and uh, I had some holes that were plugged up in my experience that allowed me to perform at the highest level. But if you actually really wanted to play this game, if we all wanted to play reset, we all wanted to press reset on this Nintendo game, and we wanted to really level the playing field, then uh, we would we would see. Um, like for me, if we're talking about leveling the playing field. The first thing that must occur to level the playing field is for you to give us a field. Mm-hmm. It would be so when we talk about reparations uh, and what we desire, there's people that re- reject that. But the Louisiana Purchase, uh, the Louisiana Purchase was <laughs> fifteen million dollars. The Louisiana Purchase was fifteen million dollars. That's like three hundred and eighty uh, something million dollars for one third of the United States. For one third of the United States, for 530 million acres. <laughs> so, if we want to talk about liberty, but we don't want to talk about land, um, I don't. I don't want. I don't need more of these. This is this is worthless. It's not backed by anything. It's just paper. I don't need reparations for money. What my people need is land. If we had, if we we had land, um, we would find a way to uh, thrive. And that's what Tulsa represented. That's what. Um, uh, Rosewood represented. Um, again, we don't have a specific space or land to go back to in Africa. Ghana has opened its doors to us, um, but that's a big leap to jump across the Atlantic. What does that mean to you when you talk about you when you talk about not having a, a like a, a be able to uh, a, a homeland, right? A place yeah, to go back. No to. What is that? No place to call. I know what it no means. I know what I mean, literally. What does that mean yeah. to you? No place to call home, no sense of belonging here on earth. Um, and uh, it's one thing that is actually, it's uh, one thing that has slowed down uh, our home ownership rates and why we are behind um, in addition to all the financial barriers that exist is because um, uh, when you think about Native Americans and you think about people of African descent, um, we didn't perceive uh, property in the same way that uh, our white counterparts perceive property. It wasn't something to be held, something to be possessed, something to be owned. We didn't have fences up and like, oh, this is mine right here. So when this idea of property or mine or possession came in from Europe, we were like, what do you mean? You could, you could, use, you could use all that land over there. I'm not using it right now. You could use all that land. I, I came here and this land was here. But then it was like, no, we don't just want to use that land. We want every piece of land that you're standing on. Like, that's just like, what do you mean? That's ownership of land is not even a concept here. And you, but this is what you are bringing with you from wherever you are. And so uh, there was a huge land grab in the United States. In fact, one, uh, one of King's last speeches was about land and how, um, how uh, this was actually three weeks before he died, or not before he died, before he was assassinated. Um, he was like, look, you, at the same time that we were asking for our 40 acres and a mule, um, the American government was giving land freely to white peasants and then subsidizing white peasant farmers and subsidizing them, undergirding their ability to create wealth and then giving them land grant colleges, right? So that they can go edu- get educated, giving them low interest rate loans. Like this was happening when we were asking for the exact same thing. <laughs> we were asking mm-hmm. for the exact same thing. If you gave, if, if America 
gave us land. And I, I, I think it should be actually the Native Americans that distribute the land, honestly. Um, but they've been decimated in so, so, such a way that their numbers aren't high enough to reclaim this entire land for themselves. Uh, but I also don't see the distinction between them and, their, uh, and everybody who we consider in South America. For me, those are one and the same people. So uh, this land is theirs um, and, and I honor that. Um, and we as black people just have a, a, unique, a unique experience. We know that our culturally our roots are in Africa. Um, but uh, from a land point, standpoint, uh, we don't have access uh, or can identify. So it just feels like, um, like I said, it, we feel, um, for me, and uh, our, our experience is diverse, but for me, it feels like, and I do have roots that trace to Jamaica, but of course, uh, only way we got to Jamaica was through uh, the transatlantic slave trade as well. So um, for me, it just feels like a floating spirit. You feel like a floating spirit with no sense of belonging uh, here within the human race. Um, no place uh, to consider home, that uh, this is just a temporary experience. There's nowhere to set, set and establish roots. Uh, the cultural identity isn't solidified. Um, so it's a very, um, uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of like a foster youth. Um, if anybody can even comprehend that, uh, you, uh, very few of us probably have been foster youth, but you can even comprehend uh, not knowing your parents, um, not knowing the backstory, not knowing uh, where you're actually from, not being able to tr create a family tree. <laughs> um, and you just feel like you are uh, a seed kind of just blowing, blowing in the wind, uh, looking for a sense of belonging, but not being able to find it anywhere, really. Yeah. I appreciate you you answering that because I think um, I asked you a similar question to that when we were in person for our first podcast interview. Yeah. And, um, just because you are so thoughtful about all of uh, everything that I and I and I admire it. I learned from you. I'm challenged by you. Um, you maintain a uh, you you think of all of this and the history of it and the context of it. And on the outside, you maintain a, a cool demeanor, right? Like if I, I get my, my wife last week, I mean, I get, I get very worked up by stuff, you know? And so um, mm. I'm thinking about the context of it and all of it. And I find myself like getting angry and regardless of anything, right? It could be anything. And, uh, and, and, and so it's been helpful to have, uh, you know, friends like you to, to talk with about things that's very pragmatic. And yeah. I think that's what's helpful is to be pragmatic. Yeah, well, I have my anger. I have my anger, man. I just don't think that, uh, I just don't think that, um, these long-term problems get solved in the blink of an eye or, or the signing no. of the law. So I'm, like I said, I'm a futurist and I'm, I'm working towards creating the future that we can all step into and agree on. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, oh, I went through my anger. And uh, to be honest, the only thing that saved me uh, was actually talking to various brothers um, who have had similar experiences, one-on-one -on -one calls, me calling them, them calling me. And then me trying to transmute all of my anger into inspired action. Um, anger is a powerful force. It's like a raging fire. Um, and there are those who are actually burning down cities as a result of that raging fire turning from within, manifesting without. Um, I, I realize that that is necessary to be heard. Um, but uh, I've tried to I've tried to control my anger um, and turn it into inspired action. That's actually going to create the world that we truly desire. But I do not I do not look down upon 
those folks who are doing what they do uh, because we've asked in many different ways. We've marched peacefully, uh, this and that, and it, America just didn't hear us. Um, so uh, a lot of people worry about the property than me as a property owner. Yeah, I'm worried about property. I got insurance on all my property. You know what I'm saying? So uh, what, what, what America, especially Christian America, doesn't see is that um, the life of George Floyd, and they're, actually they're seeing it now, the life of George Floyd, the life of one child of God is worth more than all the property in the city of Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And that's just hard for some people to conceive. People who are caught up in uh, the ways of this world and the materialism and the possession and again, the ownership, the life of one child of God. And you hear it over and over in terms of Jesus' narrative of going to save one lost sheep. The life of one child of God is worth more than all the property in Minneapolis. And um, that's just very hard for uh, folks to conceive. And, and now what you're, what you're noticing is that uh, these officers, they killed, uh, they tried to kill the body. Um, but when you kill the body, there are people who actually um, have spirits in them that have more impact once the body is gone than they had when they were actually in the physical body. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we see that time after time, we see that Einstein, we see that Nipsey Hussle, we see that Martin Luther King, we see that at JFK. Like there are people uh, that God uses for certain reasons that have more influence after they die than when they were actually Jesus Christ, right? Um, and uh, George Floyd was one of them. And uh, it was a wake up call uh, and what we needed. Now do I feel for his wife and feel for his daughter? Uh, yeah, and I'm so glad to see all the support going their way from some of the celebrities and things of that nature. Um, college funds being set up, et cetera. But um, uh, God works in mysterious ways. And, um, and uh, uh, I don't think his name will be forgotten. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think his yeah. name will be forgotten. So <laughs> let me ask you this. I know you got a hard stop time in about six minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so my last question I've been doing on these, you know, my, my, with 50 cups, my question has been tell me a 50 cup story um, with this. It's a different I'm asking folks to share, you know, you talked about what's gotten you through this time is talking to brothers and friends and family and folks. Um, has there been a conversation in your lifetime? It doesn't have to be right now, a relationship that has challenged you and changed the way you think about something, right? Cause that's how we started this by me saying, you know, relationships are have impacted me so greatly. And when to change a mind, to change a thought is a pretty big deal. So yeah. they've got a relationship that has done that for you. Yeah, this one's gonna be a little bit different, maybe, maybe or maybe not. I don't know who else has been on with you. But um for me, the most important relationship in my life is my relationship with my creator. Um and yeah. uh and taking that time to meditate in the morning and just listen and to get those divine downloads. Um and uh See, for me, I put relationship over religion. Um, if a religion isn't supporting the relationship, then um, then I got to discard the religion. And so um, my relationship with my creator is the most important relationship to me. And I try to have a cup of coffee with that source for me every single day. Um, uh, the, what we're trying to do right now as human beings is we're trying to change uh, things on the outside. Um, but the heart, but what has happened is that the heart is not if the heart and the mind don't change then the outward manifestation continues to perpetuate itself and so the the number one source for me that has created change and i have been changed by other people don't get me wrong but the number one it, yeah. that has created change for me is that space with my creator understanding who i am who i am in god and who god is in me 
and um, and uh, trying to stay in alignment with uh, my highest contribution and how I'm going to create the greatest, how I'm going to be used to create the greatest good in this world that I possibly can. Um, so that is, uh, that for me, that's just uh, trying to wake up. I don't, I'm not perfect, but trying to wake up first thing I do. I believe that the first three things we do uh, in the day are actually, uh, actually outline our priorities. So first thing I try to do every day is connect with my creator through meditation. Some people do it through prayer, et cetera. Uh, some people do it through reading spiritual texts. Some people do it through mantra. People do it in every different way, uh, all kinds of different ways. But that's that's for me um, the most important cup of coffee that I, I have in the most important relationship. For me, my relationship, uh, I, I, I call myself a child of God. Um, and that is my highest identity. Um, it is higher than any other identity. And it's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for all of us. Because we know that we are all being breathed through in any given moment. None of us control our breath. Okay, um, we can control our breath temporarily, but we can't stop ourselves from breathing unless we commit suicide. So most of us don't actually even think about our breath and where it comes from. But what that signals to me is that we're actually being breathed through. We actually aren't the ones that are breathing. We're actually being breathed through. And so connecting with the breath through meditation is, uh, for me, a way of connecting with my, with my creator and my source and just reminding me that I'm part of something larger. Remember, I told you that there's only two things that I've seen unite people of different cultures. One is um, an enemy or one is a, a, greater, a greater vision, like on a sports team. Um, and I think when you, we all recognize and I, I see that each of us is a child of God, forget Christian, forget Muslim, forget all these divisions, forget black, forget white, forget male, forget female, right? Those are important. They're part of our identities, but the highest identity, my first identity is child of God. And that's what unites me with all the humanity. And, um, and so that's where I start and to live in that vibration to uh, be able to see everybody as a child of God, even when they are persecuting, oppressing, uh, doing something that is not aligned with uh, making me feel good. Um, uh, that is the work. That is the work um, that I have to do internally um, and know that they're just on their journey and they may have some misunderstandings of how life truly operates and therefore they are seeking to get more good by doing bad to others and um and there's actually better ways to operate um if, as their understanding of life unfolds so um that's it for uh, me that's a beautiful answer julian i uh, uh appreciate it and um yeah i appreciate you this time and Indeed, being talking and uh, i i like i said um much of who I am, you know, has been molded by our relationship and what I've learned mm -hmm. and challenged by you. So I just continually appreciate the good you put into the world and, and having a virtual cup of coffee right now. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. I appreciate you. Um, and a uh, uh, blessing to all the listeners. I hope you take this to heart. Um, and just ask yourself, uh, everybody has a different role. So just um, identify what's the first place that you can start the easiest, the, not, not the easiest thing that you can do, like in terms of like a hashtag, but like, what's the easiest place to start in terms of your, your impact, um, on the collective consciousness, uh, of us all and, and go from there. Um, you don't, don't compare your walk to somebody else's Just figure out what you can do and start there. I love it. Thank you, Julian. All right, brother. Much love. Thank you for listening to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. 
If you haven't already, please head on over to YouTube and check out my TEDx talk, The 50 Cups of Coffee Challenge. Additionally, if you haven't already, please leave us a rating and leave a review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening. That stuff helps us way more than I can ever explain to you. So please, if you are so inclined, leave us a rating and a review and subscribe. If you'd like to connect with me, if you have questions about the guests, if you have uh, suggestions for future guests, if you, if, you, if you have thoughts about how I could serve your team or your organization, please connect with me on social at Bobby Audley. This podcast is a production of the Pinot Training Group, and the theme music is by Matisse Soy. To learn more about the work we do, head on over to PinotTrainingGroup.com.